Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Maha Nassar. She is an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at University of Arizona. Her specialty is Arab culture and intellectual history with a focus on Palestinians. Her book, entitled Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World, won the 2018 Palestine Book Award, and she's working on a new book right now, so we'll talk about that today as well. So welcome, Maha. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, You and I met through working on general education stuff, which is so exciting. We're both really invested in that. So yeah, so I'm assuming you teach general education. I do. Oh, good. Um, So what is the class that you're teaching for for general education? So I teach two classes in the general education curriculum. One is a tier one, well, what was, <laughs> what is currently a tier one. Yeah. Um, it's an introduction to the religion of Islam. Mm. So there are well over a billion Muslims in the world. Yeah. And they have a history that goes back 1400 years and it's a very rich and um, diverse history as well. And so the theme for the course, as I've developed it, developed it is unity amid diversity. Mm. So there are lots of elements that draw Muslims all over the world together, but then there are also elements that really mark the diversity and differences between between different Muslims. And that's something that I'm really interested in, both intellectually and personally, having met lots of different Muslims um, growing up. And the other class I've taught up until recently um, is a tier two introduction to the uh, history of the modern Middle East. Oh, okay. So that one's more historically oriented. It's a little bit closer to my own research. Mm-hmm. We talk about the history of, of the modern Middle East. Oh, so we look at it from a political perspective, but also from cultural and social perspectives as well. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I would imagine that the tier one course um, on Islam is probably quite popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get, a, we get good enrollment. It's a larger class. We yeah. have um, with TAs and things like that. So yeah. a lot of freshmen because it's tier one. Right. And what's really cool about that class is also the diversity of the students who take it. Mm. So some students come in, they really know nothing about Islam. They have had very little exposure to it. And then others come having grown up in a Muslim environment. And so they know something, but that's often very much related to their own personal experiences. And so they get to enjoy learning about other parts and other approaches to Islam that maybe they didn't know before. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's fascinating. So take me back a little bit to your, to where you come from and where you grew up and, and talk to me a little bit about your childhood and maybe how you got interested in what you actually do for research. Sure. Yeah, it is very much related, I think, to how I grew up. Um, so I was born in Tucson, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, one of the few people, I think, of my generation who can say that my parents um, both came to the U of A, both came to the United States through the U of A as oh. graduate students oh. way back when. And so my mom was in um, chemistry and my dad was in engineering. Hmm. And then they had me and neither finished their PhDs, uh, but rather they got jobs and moved to Chicago. So they moved to Chicago when I was a baby. And so I grew up in the Chicago area. Okay. Um, having, so my, like, I know I was born in Tucson, but I didn't have any experiences growing up there. But the Chicago area is really fascinating because it's home, the Chicago and the suburbs 
are home to one of the largest Muslim American communities in the US and one of the largest Palestinian American communities in the US. Oh, wow. My family is both Palestinian and Muslim. Those two communities, there's some overlap, but there's a lot of distinction as well. Okay. The minority of Muslim Americans are Arab. The majority are, are not. They're either South Asian or African American. So the you know Arabs by ethnicity only make up about a, maybe a third, less than a third of the kind of the U.S.'s Muslim population. Okay. So, and then you have a lot of Arab Americans who are Christian. So the majority of Arab Americans actually in this country came from, come from Christian backgrounds. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. From Syria. A lot of them came around World War One, around the turn of the 20th century. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, demographically speaking, the majority of what we would call Arab Americans are technically Christian, but they're not as, yeah, it's like one of those, huh. I didn't know that. Right. I'm learning already. <laughs> so, so the majority of Muslims aren't Arab and the majority of Arabs in this country aren't Muslim, but I was both. So I grew up very much in, in those environments. And then, and more specifically in, in a Palestinian American, sort of a hub in the Southwest side of Chicago, okay. where there is a large community of Palestinian, um, Palestinian Americans, most of whom are Muslim. Okay. So um, and so growing up, I, ha- I felt like I had a foot in multiple worlds. I had, uh, so I was part of this community, this sort of hub of Arab Muslims living on the Southwest suburbs of Chicago. But actually my family and I lived in Naperville, which is a far Western suburb of Chicago that was more kind of white and middle-class. Mm-hmm. So I was like the only Arab kid, the only Muslim kid in my class, probably in my school. But you know, we would go on Sundays and on weekends and holidays, we, we would drive 45 minutes to the mosque and the community and the center and my friends were there and so forth. So I felt, I knew what it was like to be the only one who, you know, looked like me or had my name or whatever mm-hmm. um, in, in elementary school. And then, but I also knew what it was like to be more and more of a community. Yeah. And then junior high and high school, I actually went to an Islamic high school in, in that Southwest suburban area. And so that was really, I think, informative and formational for me because um, I really got to develop my own sense of identity in a, in a place where I wasn't feeling othered the yeah. way that I'm sure I would have been in like circa 1980s public high school. Sure. In circa 1990s. So that I think was really fascinating. It was really comforting for me. I learned a lot. I grew a lot. Um, I gained a lot of confidence. I was actually really shy when I was a really little kid. Mm-hmm. So I got experience with public speaking and things like that. And I got out of my shell a, a little bit more, I think, in that environment. Mm-hmm. But what it also did was it really opened my eyes to the huge gap and, and sort of chasm between what I knew and was learning and was seeing in my environment about what it meant to be Arab or Palestinian or Muslim. And then what I was seeing on television and what I was reading in the newspapers about those people over there called Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians who are like weird and violent and horrible people. And I'm like, that's not who we are. That's not who I am. That's not what my family is about. That's not what my friends are about. And so I became really interested from a very early age um, how those gaps came to be. Like, what is it about the U.S. media that 
you know, misrepresents us so much? And what are the structures behind that? I wasn't able to articulate that at that time, obviously, but it's looking back on it now, I definitely see it as um, like as a seed that was planted that yeah. ultimately led me on the journey that I am now on. Wow. I mean, that's, that's very powerful to think about as a young person experiencing that. Um, I think now, like many of us who grew up here and are, you know, I mean, by all accounts, I'm very typical American, right? A white person mm -hmm. who grew up in the suburbs. I could never articulate an experience like that from a young age, right? Because I didn't experience that. I mean, I remember being othered for other reasons, but it wasn't mm -hmm. like a whole group that I identified with was being demonized, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I cannot even imagine experiencing that as a young person and how mm -hmm. formative that must have been in your in your thinking and in the you know the way that you view the world and the way you view America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was very, and this is also, all of this is happening before 9-11. So this is like in the 80s and 90s before, all, before, you know, Muslims and Arabs were even more demonized and even more othered um, after 2001. So it has a longer history that goes back. I mean, in my research, I find that it goes back, you know, into, well, into the early mid 20th century, and then it picks up in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It goes back. So for people listening like me who maybe don't really truly understand what Palestinian means mm -hmm. uh, or because you use these terms Palestinian and Arab both. So can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what it means to be Palestinian, like what what that relates to, what part of the world that is? I mean, I think in general we have an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So usually when we're talking about Arab, we're talking about an ethno-linguistic group. So okay. people who speak the Arabic language, mm -hmm. typically, not always, but typically are referred to and refer to themselves as Arab, the, in that there is this shared kind of cultural and linguistic connection that connects people from Morocco, across North Africa and Egypt, the kind of Eastern Mediterranean, um, which is sometimes called the Levant, and then the Arabian Peninsula, and then sort of up to Iraq. And then the Iraqi-Iranian border is sort of kind of the, the Eastern perimeter, the Eastern edge of the Arab world. Okay. So it's a huge swath of land. It covers like, there's, I think something like 350 million or so Arabs that live across that region right now. So it's quite large and it's also very diverse. Yeah. And then within that sort of big swath of what we might call the Arab world, there are 22 nations within it. Mm -hmm. And each country or each nation has their own distinct identity. Mm -hmm. Some of it is also linguistic in that different Arabs speak different dialects of Arabic. Mm -hmm. Some of it is sort of cultural and related to cuisine. Some of it is historical and related to the specific histories of the region. So, so the case of the Palestinians, though, is a little bit unique because there is a national group mm -hmm. that refers to ourselves as Palestinian. There is a piece of land that we refer to and have referred to for a long time as Palestine. Mm -hmm. But there's a state on it, the state of Israel, and Israelis claim that same land for themselves, for their own national identity and, and historical background. So Palestinians see themselves, we see ourselves as constituting a nation, mm -hmm. although we don't have a state. Okay. Right? So in most cases, the nation and the state kind of coexist with one another. Mm -hmm. Here's a case where there's a nation without a state. Mm 
And so the big struggle of the 20th century has been Palestinians seeking to acquire sovereignty, right? Some kind of national self-determination that would allow us to, um, you know, have our own say in how we live our lives and how we organize society and so forth. Yeah. So, so the, you know, so that's who the Palestinians are. And so, um, and because of the conflict with Israelis and with the Zionist movement that preceded it, Palestinians are now scattered all over the world. Mm -hmm. So while we all have a sense of attachment to this land of Palestine, and we can all tell, like, I can tell you exactly where my parents were born in Palestine and where they come from. Mm -hmm. I have to know that information because I'm going to be quizzed if I meet any other Palestinian anywhere else in the world. Oh, interesting. Yeah, 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 they're going to wear from Palestine. So it's not enough to just say you're Palestinian because there's a strong sense that Palestinians belong to the land. Right? There's a sense that we are very much a part of it, even though we don't live there. So about half of the world's Palestinian population today, so there's about 13 million Palestinians, according to the latest sort of census, mm-hmm. about half of them live within kind of historic Palestine, which is today Israel and the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Okay. And then the other half live everywhere else, mm. mostly in other Arab countries. Okay. But also in Europe and Australia and the U.S. and Canada and so forth, Latin America. Okay. So was there a time before Israel became a state that that area of land was called Palestine? Yeah, it actually goes way, way back. Um, so there are geographic references that go back to the, the ancient Greek period. So Herodotus, the wow. old Greek historian, talks about that land as Palestine. Okay. Um, the Byzantine period, the Romans and Byzantines referred to that area as Palestine. Mm-hmm. Palestinians referred to it as Palestine. Like the, the inhabitants, we could say, sort of before there was a thing called nationalism, there were people living in places. And so kind of geographically, linguistically, for a long time, that place has been called Palestine or Philistine in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just looking at a map earlier because I didn't have a great sense of where these Mm -hmm. places were. I mean, I hear about places like the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and Israel and Palestine, and I was trying to sort of put the puzzle together in my head and realizing that what is now maybe the the quote-unquote physical land that is called Palestine is a very small amount of land, Mm -hmm. very small. And I looked at that and I said, whoa, you know, how does that even make sense? I just have a really hard time understanding how that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, you know, from your point of view, what, I don't know how to ask this question, but what, what was, what do you think are the, what is the reason behind say the West Bank and Gaza Strip being Palestine and the rest of it being Israel? Right. So all of it historically was like, if we go to the, we'll start in the early 20th century. Yeah. So like in the early 20th century, that territory was a district within the larger Ottoman Empire. Okay. And you had living there Muslims and Christians and Jews who all sort of affiliated with the land. They lived together in Jerusalem in particular because it's a holy site for the three monotheistic faiths. So you had Muslims and Christians and Jews. They were all kind of living there, speaking Arabic for the most part um, and kind of doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Then... Um, also around that same time, sort of the turn of the 20th century, we start to see the rise of national movements. Well, they were already taking place in Europe, but we see more and more kind of nationalist movements on the rise, mm-hmm. particularly in Europe. And 
as we know with nationalism, nationalism doesn't just define who you are, it defines who's not part of the nation. Right. And unfortunately, in so many cases of European nationalism, Russian nationalism, the other was classified as Jew, as the Jew or Jewish people. Okay. And so increasingly over the course of the late 19th and then into the 20th century, we see a rise of violence against Jews, particularly in Russia and Poland, sort of that area. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's also even in Western Europe, despite their claims of kind of liberal, you know, openings and what have you, Jews often still found themselves scapegoated. And so there emerged in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, a political movement known as Zionism mm -hmm. that sought to establish, that also claimed that Jews around the world constituted a national identity. Okay. And they needed a state that could be a safe haven for them. Hmm. And given the um, religious significance of Palestine and Jerusalem particularly for Jews, they chose that to be their home. Yeah. Catch was there were already people living there right. who were also developing their own national identity and their own kind of push for self-rule, yeah. uh, trying to get out from under Ottoman rule mm -hmm. and themselves. Right. And so you had these two national movements that emerge at the same time, one comprised of the indigenous peoples on the land and the other seeking to as they put it, the Zionist leaders themselves talked about colonizing the land. And what they meant by that was developing the land in a kind of modern capitalist sense, mm -hmm. um, developing it economically, industrially, and so forth, but also bringing people, bringing Jews to Palestine and seeking to replace the people who are already living there. Yeah. So that's essentially what happens um, and continues to happen with the help of the British. So the British take over Palestine after World War I, mm. after the Ottomans fall. And throughout the 1920s and 30s, the British helped facilitate Zionist immigration to Palestine and facilitate the, and help lay the groundwork for the pre-state institutions that become the foundation of um, the Israeli state. Okay. And then in 1947-48, the United Nations decides to partition Palestine to create two states, one Jewish and one Arab. Um, the Arab Palestinians found it to be unfair because, and they worried that they would be expelled from the Jewish state mm -hmm. where there were half a million people in the area slated to be part of the Jewish state. So they rejected it and war broke out. And Israel was established and about 750,000 Palestinians became refugees in 1948, including my parents. Wow. So they were both children in 1948. They were born in different parts of Palestine. So their, but their, ref, their experiences as refugees um, was also a profound, had a profound impact on my interest in studying this and also sort of narrating this history to people who don't know about it. Sure. Like me, <laughs> who's really interested in, in hearing all of this and learning about it, you know, because we definitely get sort of a biased, more one-sided view here in the States, especially if I think back to say high school history classes or something, it was never taught to us in this way ever. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of things, right. That we learn here in America that are not taught to us in the most thorough ways. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, yeah. 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 
So, it and it's been tough because, and this is something else that I, I study and, and have read quite a bit about, is that the story of Israel maps in many ways the story of the U.S. Mm-hmm. You have people seeking religious freedom, right? Right, and they establish a country, and there, like, there's a great deal of pride associated with it. Sure. And nobody really wants to talk about the people who are already living there and who were expelled and who were killed and who were occupied and who were placed in reservations and so forth. Yeah. What's what's heartening, I think, to me now is that as more and more Americans are revisiting American history, mm-hmm. there's also a greater willingness to revisit the history of Israel's founding as well yeah. without the kind of rose-colored glasses that has shaped the, the, the discourse for a really long time. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right about that. It's maybe we're even at somewhat of a turning point, right? Because now we're starting to see even some movements to change things that kids are taught in school when it comes to the U.S. So mm-hmm. maybe that will start to happen in the broader sense as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know, did when you were young, did your parents tell you about their experiences as refugees? So no, my mom was two years, but so my mom was three. So she didn't have kind of living memories of the war itself. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, her family, um, they were better off than a lot of Palestinian refugee families. My grandfather had a college education. Mm-hmm. He was able to get a pretty decent job. They never had to live in camps. So she ended up with a sort of middle-class upbringing. She went to college herself and so forth. My dad was 11 in 1948. So he has much more vivid memories. Yeah. I now recognize why he never wanted to tell me those stories. But when I was little, I would ask him and he wouldn't tell me. He'd tell me before the war, when he was really little, he'd talk about his village. Mm-hmm. And then he would talk about a few years after the war, when he was going off to Europe and sort of working around the world and stuff. Oh. But those specific years of the war and of becoming a refugee and having to live in a camp and so forth. He didn't want to talk about it to me growing up. Only in the last few years, he's been willing to open up about it. So the other thing I think also why I became so interested in Palestinian history was in many ways to kind of discover or uncover and learn about this history that was too traumatizing for the adults in my life to talk to me about. Yeah. My dad really did not want to talk about this stuff when I was growing up. Sure. Especially the war itself, the 48 war itself. So, um, so yeah, and I remember in, in graduate school, I'd be reading accounts of the 1948 war. And I, I remember specifically coming to an account about the destruction and depopulation of his village. It's called Barbara in, in the South. And I, I came home one day, and I was like, you know, Baba, this is what I read. And he's I'm like, does that like accord with what you remember? And he's like, yeah. I was like, is there anything else you want to add? He's like, no. no just... <laughs> and the funny thing is my dad's a great storyteller. He, he would regale me with stories of his childhood and of his like young adulthood and so forth. Yeah. But that particular moment he did not want to talk about. I mean, it's probably common for people who experience trauma like that to not want to talk about it. I mean, it's got to be re-traumatizing in some yeah. way. You have to go back and think about it. Yeah. And then especially faced with your own child and having to tell them about potentially horrific things that you saw or experienced, who wants to tell their kids those things? Right. Mm-hmm. So you can understand, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's so interesting to me that 
you actually grew up here in the States, but you have obviously such a strong connection to this entire history that is your history, even though you didn't actually physically live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's a part of that, you know, now more recently we hear about things like, um, epigenetics and the ways in which trauma sort of carries over from one generation to the next. And when I talk, especially to my friends who are Palestinian American, we're like, oh yeah, we see that now. <laughs> like, you know, growing up, we're like, why are our parents this way or that way? And now you're like, oh, I get it now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine, you know, I mean, neither of my parents experienced anything related to war, right? So, I mean, I can get stories from them about their childhoods and it wasn't all rosy, but none of them are, you know, harboring any stories about growing up in a place that was war-torn. So it's also as a child, I mean, was there ever any aspect of trepidation or fear around that for you being a young person, like just thinking about what your parents may have experienced? Not trepidation necessarily, but definitely, and I, you know, where it comes in is when I thought, when I thought about or or read about or or heard about or saw, witnessed the Palestinians under occupation. So you asked me about the different geographies, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got up to 1948 and that's when the state of Israel was established. And that's when you have these hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who became refugees. But Israel wasn't established over the whole of historic Palestine. You had the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The West Bank came under Jordanian control and the Gaza Strip came under Egyptian control. And it sort of held that way as a stalemate stalemate until 1967. Mm -hmm. There was another war and Israel took over those areas as well. Oh. So now Israel is controlling the West Bank, the Palestinians living in the West Bank in East Jerusalem, as well as the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. So initially it was unclear what the fate of those Palestinians would be because Israel didn't want to annex the territories and make them citizens because then they wouldn't have a Jewish state or as much of a Jewish state, I suppose, yeah. um, as they had, but they didn't want to relinquish the land either for, for a variety of reasons. And so the Palestinians came under Israeli military control. Mm. So they don't have the same kinds of rights that people in a, in a democracy would have. Um, and so, you know, arbitrary arrest and confiscation of land and taxation without representation. I mean, the whole sort of realm of military control. And that, that continues until today. But in 1987, there was an uprising. Palestinians led a large um, civil disobedience and kind of mass uprising that became known as the First Intifada. Mm. uprising and I was in junior high at the time Mm -hmm. and that was sort of my first I said at the beginning that kind of juxtaposition of kind of media portrayals of Palestinians and then personal experiences that's when it really kind of hit home Mm -hmm. that the Palestinians and the way they're being talked about on the news doesn't quite match what I'm hearing at home because this was sort of dinner conversation and phone conversations and mm-hmm. calls to home and, and things like that. So, um, so that was really formative for me in, in many ways and sort of seeing these young Palestinians who they have their faces wrapped so they, can, um, they won't be recognized by the, by the security forces mm-hmm. and they won't be arrested. And at that time, it was illegal to raise the Palestinian flag under mm. occupation. 
because, because part of the point of the occupation was to stamp out Palestinian national identity. Mm. Because if Palestinian national identity is recognized globally, mm-hmm. the lo- next logical step is to say, well, then they should have a state of their own. And Israel didn't want that yeah. at the time. Yeah. Or still now, I would say. Um, and so, so I remember like watch, and it was a lot of women who led in the demonstrations and who were part of this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were women, you would see women protesters and women sort of wrapped their heads, but raising the flag and then being shot at and then having to run. It was like, really, this is on the evening news. Remember, this is like when we had three news channels, right? Right. So this is what I'm watching as a kid in junior high, like, whoa. And then it was because it was generating so much um, American news interest. I remember too, there was a, there was a show called Nightline that would have like, a, it was like an in-depth news program. Yep, yep. They had a special on this whole thing and they had a panel of um, three Israelis and three Palestinians and then Ted Koppel, the moderator. Yeah. And they were all men except for one Palestinian woman. Huh. Right. So it's like a man all except for the one woman. Right. And her name was Hanan Ashrawi and she was a university professor mm. in Palestine. She was an English literature professor, actually. And so okay. she spoke really good English. She was very articulate, very force, forceful and forthright. And I also remember being a teenager like, oh, so professors can do stuff like they can be on television and they can like articulate in a very kind of clear level-headed but passionate way and like they and people are listening to them yeah like and that's different from the women in the in the demonstrations like they carry their own power and their own kind of weight but I'm thinking about this as an American like how do you reach an American audience Mm -hmm. here's a Palestinian who's reaching an American audience and so she became a kind of role model for me when I was growing up but I think it also planted in my head the idea that academia was a route, especially for Palestinian women to be able to, to sort of move forward. Yeah. That's so fascinating because I feel like that's true um, for a lot of women. Like when you think about who are the women who have big platforms in this country and aside from, you know, celebrities, it's Mm -hmm. often women who are academics who are either writing books, right. Or giving talks around the country and, And so you think, wow, there's something about, I mean, it's in some ways it's unfortunate because I feel like men don't have to necessarily have the same credentials to be put on a panel on a news show. Totally, totally. Right? Right. But at the same time, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pursuing an an academic career, you know, Mm -hmm. pursuing a higher degree in an academic career, especially to help bring light to issues that you're passionate about. Exactly, exactly. Fantastic. So where did you go to graduate school? So I went to the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, I, uh, my program for my master's, it was called uh, Master's in Middle Eastern Studies. And then my PhD is in something called Near Eastern Languages and oh. Civilizations. Mm-hmm. So I was trained as a historian, but the, that what's called NALC or Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations really focused on texts and interpreting texts. Mm-hmm. It actually comes out of like biblical studies, oriental studies, kind of learning lots of languages, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had already studied Arabic, but I studied um, Hebrew and Persian as well. Um, the idea is to train you to be able to examine different perspectives of the Middle East and not just one. And so, so it was actually studying Hebrew 
that I became interested in Palestinian citizens of Israel. Okay. So that's a whole like, right. So there, so I told you about all the Palestinians, including my parents who became refugees. Yeah. Forty-eight, But not everybody was expelled. Okay. Some remained, some insisted on saying, staying, some snuck back in after 1948. Mm -hmm. And eventually they were, most of them were given Israeli citizenship. But uh, so they become known as Palestinian citizens of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we know from our country, not all citizenships are the same. The same. Right. Right. So they end up being and still are in many ways second class citizens um, in a country that lauds itself as a democracy. Right. Uh, and so I became really interested in them in particular. I think the idea of being a minority in a democracy kind of allowed me to make a connection sure. in some ways. Um, and so that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about. And then in the course of writing my dissertation, all the secondary literature about them kept talking about how isolated they were, they couldn't travel, like, you know, other Palestinians couldn't come in. But as I was going through their writings, and I was interested in their literary writings specifically, they're like, up on the news and all of like, things that are happening in Iraq and in Lebanon and in Egypt and in Europe and in Africa and in South America and in the US. I'm like, whoa, what are they like? How are they accessing all this information? They're, they were like writing op-eds against the US war in Vietnam. I'm like, why are you guys writing op-eds about the US war in Vietnam? Yeah. And it's because they had, I, I came to learn and I write in my book about how there is this in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, there's this global kind of anti-colonial, anti-imperialist worldview mm -hmm. where everybody sees themselves as being in a similar boat. And so there's a strong sense of solidarity with them, with each other. Okay. That is very, um, allows them to have a sense of empathy, but also a sense of, of solidarity and support for people who are facing similar struggles in other parts of the world. Now, this was largely happening on the left Right, so these are mostly leftist and communist um, politicians and, and uh, cultural producers and so forth. Yeah. The other thing I discovered, which wasn't in my dissertation or my book, but I wrote an article about it recently. So to back up a step, my, my BA degree is in English language and literature. Okay. I didn't think I was going to do Middle East anything growing up. Mm. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think it was an option for me, I guess. Plus, Hanan Ashari was an English lit major. So I was like, I'll be an English lit major. Okay. So as an English lit major in undergrad, I was really interested in the Harlem Renaissance writers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Black American writers in the 20s and 30s. And so, so fast forward to my dissertation research, I'm going through these Arabic literary magazines that are published by Palestinian citizens of Israel. And one day I come across an Arabic translation of a Langston Hughes poem. Oh, wow. What? What's going on here? Yeah. And at the time I didn't understand and I didn't have, there wasn't, I hadn't come across any secondary literature to explain this to me. Fast forward another 15 years or so and I come to realize that the Harlem Renaissance writers, and I wasn't taught this as an undergrad in the 90s, but apparently the Harlem Renaissance writers were very tuned into leftist thought. And many of them were part of the American Communist Party. Yep. Several of them traveled to the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so the Palestinian leftists are in touch with leftists all over the world, mm -hmm. including Black American leftists. Wow. So Langston Hughes and County Cullen and W.E.B. Du Bois, like lots of Black American writers who are more kind of on the left mm -hmm. were being translated 
and they were resonating with Palestinians. So in recent years, there's been discussion of um, what the sort of shorthand of it is Black Palestine solidarity. Mm. There's been a lot of um, movement in that realm in the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of protests and a lot of like messages of support this past summer when George Floyd was killed and you had all those protests. Yeah. So there was like a huge mural, mural of George Floyd in, um, in Gaza and in the mm. West Bank. Really? Yeah, so there's a strong sense of, of solidarity and a sense of like what it means to be somewhere and be discriminated against, mm-hmm. right? And what does it mean to be told you're other when you have nowhere else to go? Right. And what does it mean to be racialized too? Right. It's so interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, even with people who are other, quote unquote other, there's often somewhere on planet earth that if you're in a place where you feel othered, you might relate to some place on planet earth where you could potentially not be the other, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and I'm not saying this is in any way a solution, but what I mean is there could be a place that you identify with where you say, well, if I was there, I wouldn't be the other, I would Mm -hmm. be the majority. And it's striking me that there is no place like that for Palestinians. Where Mm -hmm. is the place where you go and it's your place, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And I, is there any other population on earth that has this exact same or very similar situation? I'm struggling to come up with with any where you would say they have nowhere to go. I mean, I think a lot of Kurds identify with Palestinians, right? Because mm-hmm. Kurds have a very strong sense of national identity, but they're geographically are split up yeah. between Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Iran. Mm-hmm. So they don't have a place where they can sort of rule over themselves. Right. Mm, I think they're like, that you have, there are, but not many, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And also like now in the 21st century, even fewer, right? So for example, the Irish for a long time in the 20th century, very much uh, affiliated and still do in many ways affiliated with the Palestinians because both of them understood what it meant to have kind of British colonialism mess up their lives. Sure, sure. Right? And yeah. sort of a colonial, a colonial imposition on them. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. And also there was a lot of solidarity and, and sort of joint struggle between um, Palestinians and South Africans in the mm. days of apartheid. Yeah. And Nelson Mandela spoke very highly and very forcefully in, in support of the Palestinian cause for liberation. Sure. But yeah, like a lot of that is 20th century. And now we're like 21 years into the 21st century. And it's like, who else is left? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's such an interesting and unique position. And I think this is probably the first time that I've ever just thought about it in this way. And it, it can feel heartbreaking Mm -hmm. for someone on the outside who's ignorant of all of this. You know, I only Mm -hmm. know what I read or what I hear from people like you. And it's thinking about it that way can, it feels heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is for a long time, the, uh, a very common theme or thread in U.S. sort of discussions about this, well, is that, well, there are no such thing as Palestinians. They're just Arabs and they can just go to one of the other Arab countries. There was no recognition that Palestinians had any sense of belonging or identity or anything. The first Intifada, the uprising in the late 80s, I think chipped away at that for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And then it became, well, 
the Palestinians should just be happy with whatever we give them and we're going to give them crumbs, essentially. I mean, the Oslo Accords and the sort of death, the, the sort of arrangement that came in essentially was granting Palestinians a kind of autonomy, mm-hmm. but without real, real control, real sovereignty. Yeah. And we see that right now actually playing out with the controversy around the vaccines. Oh. So, Palestinian, so Israel has been very sort of proud of itself that they're vac- they've vaccinated a high percentage of their population, mm-hmm. whereas Palestinians, very few of them have gotten vaccinated. And here I'm talking about Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And so Israel says, well, it's not our problem. You guys signed an agreement. You've got a, a government and an authority. You can just you know take care of yourselves. But Israel controls everything that goes into and out of the West Bank and Gaza. So, you know, legally speaking, by pretty much everyone's interpretation of international law, Israel is still the occupying power. And so it still has the responsibility for ensuring that Palestinians are vaccinated. Yeah. But alas. Alas. Well, so this reminds me a lot of, um, of Tibet, which is where I did my <laughs> work. And, oh, um, wow. You know, it's an occupied area. The Chinese call it the autonomous nation of mm-hmm. Tibet, and they're free quotes, right? Free, um, but they're occupied with military. So when you go there, there's Chinese military everywhere with guns, and mm-hmm. you are not allowed to have a picture of the Dalai Lama in your house unless it's the Chinese Dalai Lama, right? So I mean, yeah. there there are some parallels there, and mm-hmm. I remember. Um, being there feeling very torn because, you know, we worked with a, a lot of Tibetans. I mean, they were our drivers and our companions and our guides. And, you know, we became family with them because we lived with them for a hundred plus days in the middle of nowhere and we get to know them. And for them, um, they were happy to have opportunities that they didn't have prior to the occupation in terms of jobs and housing and school, Right. But on the other hand, um, wanted to worship freely and be mm-hmm. able to, you know, carry pictures of the Dalai Lama and all of these things. So it's, it's, it's a complicated problem. So I'm curious, you said that there were people who either chose to stay in Israel and become sort of citizens of Israel. Do you have a sense of what was it that, that motivated people to stay or to sneak back in? What, what was it that people were looking for or wanted after that happened? I mean, a lot of it, as I said before, is a sense of attachment to the land. A lot of it is, so some of it is also historical circumstance. And so the areas where most Palestinian citizens of Israel live right now is they're mostly in the Galilee, which is in Northern, what is today Northern Israel. Mm-hmm. And that was among the last areas to be conquered. And so by the time in sort of summer and fall of 1948, by the time the Israeli soldiers arrived there, they had already heard about hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, or they'd already heard sort of stories of Palestinians who fled their homes during the fighting, thinking they'd be gone two weeks, only to find that there are now, you know, razor wire and armed checkpoint guards saying, no, you can't go back in. So they kind of learned from the experience of the earlier waves of Palestinian refugees and they're like "Uh uh-uh we're not going Mm -mm." yeah and they because they live closer to the border they were able to sneak across the border more easily than Palestinians who lived in the more central areas okay and 
you say that you were saying that the with the vaccine issue, for example, that you know Israel basically controls everything, but they're saying, well, you guys are independent. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do they think? What is that supposed to mean? What is independent for them? Right, right. I mean, so here's the big, and I think this is why in the '90s I did English lit instead of Middle <laughs> East history, because yeah. so. Um, so we talked about the 48 war and the 67 war. We talked about the first uprising in 87, another kind of big date. I'm a historian, so yeah. I kind of anchor things in dates. Sure. So another big date is 1993. So 1993, uh, there was the signing of what becomes known as the Oslo Accords between right. the state of Israel and the PLO, which was representing the Palestinian people. And essentially it created what they called an interim Palestinian self-governing authority. Okay. Or PA, Palestinian Authority for short. Okay. And it was supposed to be a transitional thing until a final negotiated status would be reached. Mm-hmm. And a final negotiating, a final status has never been reached. Okay. So Palestinians for the last 28 now years, uh, in in the West Bank and Gaza, because that's where this is, that's where we're talking about. They've been living in this kind of state of limbo, where some aspects of their lives are governed by this Palestinian Authority, but the really important ones, like access to vaccine, travel in and out, pretty much everything is controlled by Israel. Mm-hmm. So the Oslo Accords were brilliant for Israel in that they could say, okay, we're ending the occupation now. Everyone was all upset at us about the occupation. We've ended the occupation now, but we're just gonna keep control of these certain things right over here, right? Yeah. So, and so what happened too was that in the American media, like newspaper and, and um, you know television and everything discourse, the occupation kind of gets quietly erased from the descriptions Right. So nowadays, so in the 80s, if you look like at historically at news footage, like ABC News or whatever, from the 1980s, from the first Intifada, like occupation is part of like, that's why there's an uprising. It's because there's an occupation. Let us explain to you, friendly viewers, what an occupation is and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. After 1993, it's like, oh, there are these two sides and they've entered into negotiations and now they're, the negotiations have stalled and now they're back at the table. So there was such an emphasis on the peace process element that the underlying continuing occupation got you, you ignored, erased, however you want to put it. Um, and so Palestinian lives are still governed by Israel. Yeah. But it's not described as such in the US. Right. And so that allows Israel to say, well, okay, the Palestinians have an authority, they should be the ones handling the vaccine. And I would argue that this term peace process that you hear a lot, right? If you're an American and you hear this in the news, I mean, is it, is there really peace? Is there any sort of peace? I mean, even if there's not quote unquote an occupation, right? It it doesn't seem to me like this is a peaceful place. No, it's not. It's It's a militarized, highly militarized conditions. It's militarized for Palestinians in the occupied territories. But it's also highly policed and militarized for Palestinian citizens of Israel. Hmm. So just this morning, I read a report about a Palestinian citizen of Israel in the city of Haifa, which is in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a young man with, and he had mental, you know, he has um, mental disability. Mm-hmm. And he had an episode 
And so his mom called the police because she was worried about him kind of running out into the street. And the police shot him dead. Three oh. shots in the back. Right. And he's dead. Right. So those and so to go back to the Black Palestinian solidarity element of it, a lot of those stories ring true for so many people. Sure. Um, and even around the same week, I think that George Floyd was killed. There was another young Palestinian man with autism mm -hmm. in the in in Jerusalem, in sort of East Jerusalem, West Bank, who was stopped at a checkpoint mm -hmm. to his um, adult school, and he had a, a card to explain because he can't, he's not really verbal. Mm -hmm. um, and, but he also has a hard time as all people with autism have, has a hard time processing information and, and commands and so forth. And so there was some kind of miscommunication and he too was killed. Wow. So there are a lot. And so these things also don't make the news, right? They don't make, like I follow it because I follow this stuff but like, it's not gonna be a headline on in the New York Times, for example. Sure. or on your like newsfeed. And so what also happens is that Palestinians face violence every day mm -hmm. and we just don't hear about it. We only hear episodes when Palestinians commit acts of violence mm -hmm. and not when acts of violence are committed against them. And so it creates a very lopsided perception of, you know, of reality. Which, which is so parallel to the African-American experience here in the United States, mm -hmm. which is I think maybe ever so slowly starting to change, at least in terms of what the media covers. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's such a long way to go. So I can't even imagine how far there is to go for, you know, for Palestinians when you think about how many hundreds of years, I mean, this has been going on in this country. It's like, we've only been around just over a couple hundred years. And for the entire time we've existed as a nation, this has been a problem, right? And yeah. it's pretty, pretty scary. Um, so I want to, in the last little bit of time we have, shift gears a little bit and ask you about the new book that you're working on and what yeah. your current work is all about. Sure. Well, it's kind of related because yeah. that's always how it goes, right? So one of the things I noticed, as I said, when I was writing my first book was the ways in which Palestinians are engaged in these sort of global um, movements and global kind of ways of thinking about things. And so that kind of global engagement coupled with the fact that um, I know so many Palestinians who live all over the world, like just my immediate cousins are probably in a dozen different countries right now. Mm. Just like my first cousins, right? They're like kind of scattered all over. And so I recognize the Palestinians are more than just the Palestinians in historic Palestine, mm -hmm. right? As important as they are, uh, they're not the only ones. right? And so I'm writing a book that conceptualizes the Palestinians as a global people mm -hmm. to try to explore the ways in which global events impact Palestinians, mm -hmm. but also the ways Palestinians make sense of being Palestinian across the globe. Okay. Right. So it's a really big project. Yeah. And I'm aiming it for a general audience. Like I don't want it to just be talking to like five other professors. I want it to really reach a larger audience because of the importance, I think, of shifting the conversation about Palestinians, especially in the English speaking world. Yeah. Right. So much of what we've talked about are the misperceptions and demonizations of the Palestinians. And I really want to change that. But I don't want it either to just be like, oh, look at these poor Palestinians who are victims of Israeli aggression. 
Because that's not, I don't think that's an interesting story and it's not the whole story either. Right. So I want to talk more broadly speaking. So I'm, I'm in the sixth century right now. Oh, reading wow. about Byzantine history. Yeah, I, I went back. <laughs> yeah, you went back. <laughs> went back because it turns out that it was in the Byzantine time, so like fourth, fifth, sixth century, but Jerusalem really becomes a global hub and then Palestine kind of extended from that as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, Jerusalem was a place of pilgrimage for Jews coming you know, even before then, but it was more of a regional pilgrimage hub Mm-hmm. In the Byzantine Empire, it really is global. So like pilgrims from Spain and Italy and France, people from Ethiopia and Egypt, people from Greece and Turkey, people from Arabia, they're all coming um, to Jerusalem. Oh, wow. That impacts trade. And there's also global, a global trade network that's happening. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like it. So when do you, when is your, do you have any projections on when your book might be done? <laughs> So I do, well, so the pandemic, as always, kind of pushed my timeline, set me back a bit, but I do have a book contract. I am supposed to have it done in 2023. So that's Yeah. Well, that's so exciting. I mean, congratulations on having a book contract. That's a huge thing. Um, And I, for one, look forward to reading that book. I'm probably going to go back and read your other book as well, because it sounds so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Um, And my last question for you is, if there are students at U of A who are listening who are interested in this type of stuff, do you have, um, do you do any work with undergrads? I know you have grad students because you're, you know, an instructor at U of A, you're a professor, so I'm sure you have graduate students, but do you do any work with undergraduates? I do. I teach a couple of undergraduate courses, 400 level courses. I'm actually teaching one this semester on the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we really focus on, and I think makes it a, a kind of distinctive class, is that we really focus on kind of the, the narrative framings on each side and how they shape perceptions of the events on the ground. Mm. And then I also teach a seminar that's a 400, 500 level seminar on, on the Palestinians, on Palestinian culture and society mm. that I'm hoping to teach next spring. I'm hoping to teach both courses in, in spring of 22. Wonderful. So, one or the, actually, no, that's not true. Because I'm going to teach religion of Islam in spring of 22. So I'll probably teach the Palestinian culture class. Okay. That's great. So students should keep an eye out for that. If they're interested in the areas, look for it, take those classes. Yeah. And um, I just want to thank you for your time because I know you're extremely busy. You're writing a book after all and teaching and doing research and all the things that academics do. Um, And I really want to thank you for your very candid and open discussion with me today about this because I learned so much. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me on this podcast for this amazing group of plucky ladies. Well, yeah, you're a plucky lady too. So um, again, thank you. And I hope that we get to talk more about this in the future. I hope so too. Take care. All right. You too. Thank you. You're welcome.